0: listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. I'm excited to be here because we are in week three of With Boldness. And I don't know about you guys, but it has been like amazing so far this series. It's been so good that I feel like we've been in it longer. Been two weeks, but it's only been two weeks. And so I'm excited for what God's going to continue to do because I feel like it's just been so good from the start. We've been talking about Acts chapter 4, verse 31, where it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So we've been talking about with boldness that God wants us to live a life of boldness. He doesn't want timid Christians. He doesn't want lazy Christians. He doesn't want Christians that live an average life. He wants people that live with boldness. And so we've seen that so far. Um, Week one, Pastor Jackson was setting it up, telling us what that looks like. Week two, we got to practice that with unity. And you guys were stepping out in boldness and you were forgiving each other. You were having those hard conversations and asking for forgiveness and just crazy, crazy, great boldness was on display last week. And it was so good. Did you guys have a good time last week, even though like that's hard to do sometimes? Yeah. Those conversations, but they're so good. And so I'm excited. We're going to dive into that again. Um, Not specifically unity, but we're going to keep going on that thought because God is not done. He's not done wanting us to have boldness. He's not done wanting to talk about it with us and have us experience that. So we're going to keep going into it. But on top of all these external encounters that we've been um, talking about, I believe God also wants us to live in boldness internally, to have like an internal moment of boldness. And so we're going to talk about that as well tonight And get going on that. Does that sound okay? Okay. We're going to get there. I'm so excited, if you can't tell, because I've said excited maybe like 30 times already. But it's because the story we're going to talk about tonight is one of my favorites. I probably have like two favorite Bible stories. I mean, they're all good. But like my top one's in the Old Testament. And it's like this donkey that starts talking to a guy named Balaam. And it's just so crazy and ridiculous and magical that it just fills my Disney heart, so I really like that one. But if it's not that one, then I like this story that we're going to talk about tonight because this is a story where I feel like boldness is all over the story. It's a good one, and God has just been stirring that story in myself even the last couple years, even before tonight, and so I'm just excited to unpack all of that with you guys. So we're going to get into it. We're going to dive into it, but before we do, let's just remind ourselves What boldness is all about. So, boldness is what we have been talking about, and it says that it is given to those resisting the status quo. To me, I think that resisting comes from what I'm gonna call tonight holy holy desperation. Yes. So, if you guys are taking notes, which I want you to take notes, because, side note, when you take notes, in students, or in any service, what you're telling God is that I think you're going to say something really important to me. I think you're going to tell me something that I need to know for my life, whether it's tonight or sometime in the future. I think you're going to tell me something that I need to remember, and so I'm going to write it down. So you're telling God, like, I expect something. So I want you to take notes because I want you to expect something tonight, okay? Sound good? So if you're taking notes, because we just talked about it, You're going to title your notes, Get Desperate. desperate. Perfect. Turn to your neighbor and say, You Desperate. (laughs) I like it. All right. We're going to pray real quick, and then we'll dive in. God, I just thank you so much for tonight. I thank you for what you have already done in this series. I thank you for what you are continuing to do. God, I pray that you would just help us boldly have an expectation that you're going to talk tonight. And I pray that you would help us to listen to it. I pray that you would help us to do it, to respond to what you're saying. And we just thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody say it. Amen. Amen. All right. So typically when we talk about desperation, that's not like a good thing, right? That's typically like not a compliment that you just pass out to people. Um, way back in my day, I'm not going to say how long ago, but desperation, we would call those people um, either needy or we would call them thirsty, right? Desperation is not a good thing. Desperate people are people that act intensely. They act extraordinarily, drastically, because they have this really big need in their life. So someone who's desperate for love They always are in a relationship, right? You know those people, like, before they even break up, they already have someone in their back pocket because they cannot be alone because they are desperate for love. Someone who's desperate for belonging, it doesn't matter what the friend group is, whether it's good or bad. As long as it's a friend, friends are better than no friends because they're desperate to belong. Someone who's desperate to be known, You're going to do anything. It doesn't matter what it costs you. It doesn't matter what you have to reveal or give away because you want to be famous. You want to be known. And so you're desperate. And some of those things are not bad in themselves. It's just that the heart posture is that I'm going to do anything necessary. It's a desperation. But tonight I want to argue that I do think there's a space where desperation can actually be holy, And that's that holy desperation that we're going to talk about tonight. Holy desperation is extraordinary behavior or boldness prompted from extraordinary need. Like I said, I think the best example of this is my favorite story found in Mark chapter 5, verse 25 and 34. So if you guys want to turn there in your Bible, we're going to read it because we like it chunky here in New Song students, right? So we are going to read all of it real quick, just to get it in our hearts, and then we're going to dive into it. So beginning in verse 25, it says, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years, and had suffered many things, and from many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So, So, so good. In verse 25 and 26, we start out our story finding out that this woman has a desperate need. It's desperate because this need has lasted for 12 years. I was thinking back on my life and I think if I did my mouth right, I was in twelfth grade, like or twelfth grade, I was in sixth grade when I was twelve. And so that means like about your guys' age in seventh grade or eighth grade for some of you, I would have been thirteen or fourteen. So that would be like some of you, your whole life, you were dealing with this issue. That's what this woman's gone through. For twelve years, she's had this need. Her need is desperate because she suffered a lot in this. Her need is desperate because she has spent all that she has in order to try and fix this need, and it hasn't worked. Her need is desperate because she's only grown worse. And her need is desperate because of the cultural consequences of her need. So we obviously didn't live in the Bible time. Anybody live in the Bible time in here? Otherwise, that would be pretty amazing. You probably are, like, real rich because you're an anomaly, but none of us lived back then. We don't live in the Middle East. We live in America, the Western culture, and our culture of this age, of 2023. So sometimes when we read scripture and we read stories, we read it through that lens, and we don't read it through the culture that was actually happening. And so sometimes we can miss stuff. And so I want to take a moment, just, just a little bit, just to kind of dive into that culture, because if we do that, we're going to really understand why her need was so desperate on top of all the other things we just mentioned. But I do want to pause before we get into there, because what we're going to talk about is a law that was found in the Old Testament. And sometimes when we hear it, because again, we're coming from our perspective and from our lifestyle right now, we read it and it sounds harsh. And we start judging God, and we put our judgment of what's right and wrong on what God does. But we forget it was a different culture. We forget, too, that sometimes what God meant for our freedom and our good... Man gets involved and twists it and adds things to it. And suddenly what was for freedom and for protection and for love becomes a burden. It becomes punishment and becomes (laughs) entrapment. So I just say that that as we go in here, if something kind of starts picking up in your heart and you're like, I don't like that about God. I don't like that. Just pause and question, was this really God's character Or is this man's intervention? And I would argue with what we're going to talk about, that it is not God's heart with that feeling that comes up. Because we see him act in love at the end of the story like we've already read. So that means God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he acts in love at the end, he was acting in love at the beginning. Okay? So, now that we've said that, let's get into what that culture looked like. This woman was living under a law that was found in the Old Testament in Leviticus 15. And what the law said basically was anybody who was bleeding, whether you're a woman or a person or whatever, when you were bleeding, there was a certain lifestyle you had to live under. You could not be connected to people. You had to be separated for those amount of days that you were bleeding because that was unclean. And you couldn't risk making anybody else around you unclean. But because man intervened and started acting up, it kind of got a little bit more serious than that. And so um, this is what David Guzik says about that. He said, according to the Jewish ideas of the time, if this woman touched anything, she made him or her ceremonially unclean. This uncleanness did not allow them to take part in any aspect of Israel's worship. Morgan, another really smart guy said, by the very law of her people, she was divorced from her husband and could not live in her home. She was ostracized from all of society and must not come into contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the service of the synagogue and was shut out from the women's courts in the temple. So put it in context of your life. If we were outside, we were getting crazy in Jungle Pong and... Um, Amen gets a little too excited, and he hits it, and it hits Austin in the face, and now he has a bloody nose. Well, that blood's unclean. Austin, he's got to go. He doesn't get to stay in service, and that would be traumatizing and dramatic and heartbreaking, but this woman experienced that every day of her life for 12 years. She couldn't come to God. She couldn't come to the church. She couldn't hang out with her family. She couldn't hang out with her friends. She was in isolation. So this woman has a very desperate need. She was physically not well. She was socially isolated, financially spent, and stuck in an identity of unclean. And that's where we find her in this story. So what does she do with her desperation? She gets bold. Her status quo was a life of isolation and sickness, but her need becomes so desperate that something wells up in the inside and it becomes this holy desperation that she begins to resist it and she begins to birth boldness in her life. And so I think if we continue to look into her story, we're going to find six ways that holy desperation leads to a life with boldness. So the story continues on in verse 27 and 28, and that's where we see her boldness really start kicking in And it says, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So the first thing we can learn from her is that holy desperation leads to boldness because of a convinced faith. So what I like about her story is that, like, how many of you guys have ever prayed a prayer more than once? Like the same prayer you've had to pray a couple times? It happens in our life. I know there's a prayer that, like, I've been praying, me and Eman have been walking in, and I know that God is already working on it and answering it. But the final result of that prayer has not happened yet. And so sometimes in the middle of, like, the really faithful days, you have days where that faith kind of starts questioning. It kind of starts getting blurry and fuzzy, and and that faith that was strong kind of gets hazy, and it looks more like hope. Like, I think God can do this. I think he will. I hope he will. So thinking about how I feel in my situation, I kind of expected and reading her story that she's been going 12 years strong on this issue, and I would think she would go to Jesus and say, I really hope you can help me. I really think that you are, like, my best chance. Like, I've gone to every doctor imaginable, all the top people in this field, and I really thought they could do it. But time and time again, my hope was destroyed. So I'm getting hope again, but I can understand if it doesn't work. But I really think it can. But she does not say anything like that. Instead, she says in verse 28, I shall be made well. She was convinced that he was going to heal her. This woman believed with such conviction that Jesus was not just a healer but her healer that she had this holy desperation and began to boldly pursue Jesus and touch Jesus. I think she can teach us that uh, boldness, living a life with boldness, looks like having a convinced faith. The second thing she can teach us is... um, Based off of verse 27 where it says, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And so it says that holy desperation leads to boldness through deliberate decisions. So this woman, she was resisting the status quo in her life of that law in Leviticus And she was doing exactly what she wasn't supposed to do. She was around a lot of people. She was touching a lot of people as she made her way through that crowd. And ultimately, she touched Jesus, which is exactly everything she was not supposed to do. Her boldness was a decision. Boldness is a decision. It's an intentional partnership with God. Last week, we talked about unity. And you will not fall. Into unity with anybody. You don't accidentally forgive anybody. You don't accidentally get forgiven. It is a bold, intentional decision to humble yourself and to pursue that with somebody. You will not stumble into reading your Bible. You don't just walk around in your room and trip, and then the Holy Bible opens up, and it just gets downloaded in your brain. That would be super magical and cool, but it doesn't work like that. It's a bold, and in- intentional decision. To say, even when I don't feel like it, I'm going to treasure this word and I'm going to read something in it. It's a decision. This woman didn't accidentally approach Jesus. She intentionally came to him and touched him. Her story continues in verse 29 and 30 and it says, Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. That is the part that I think God was doing that... She, before the end of the story where it becomes this public thing and this external thing, she had this inward boldness that God was stirring something up in her and she turned her desperation into a holy desperation and then internally she saw God move in her life. And that's what I think God wants to do with us. Before we ever have these outward experiences, he starts inward and he wants this inward moment and this intimate, individual moment with you. But her story continues, and it says, And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? This is literally my favorite part of the story, because one woman in a crowd got the attention of Jesus. Yeah. One person. Um, a little story about myself. I am not a fighter. Um, with my words, I am, but I have never... I've only been in one fight um, <laughs> one fight of my life. What? And uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no <laughs> uh, OK, but when I mean like in a fight, I mean like in a fight. So this I'll clarify. So I went to like a big school. Not the biggest school ever, but it was pretty big. So, like, my class was kind of considered the small class compared to what it normally ran, but I graduated with 192 people. So, I was used to having crowds in the school. Um, and how our school was built was there was like a bunch of classes on one end. In the middle was um, the office and like the cafeteria. And then on the other side was like drama and band and all like the gyms and auditorium, all that kind of stuff. So end of the day comes, I'm ready to get out of here. I'm like weaving in and out of crowds. And, you know, you're used to crowds, so people are coming in all directions. I'm coming from the classes. This other big group is coming from the other side, like the cafeteria or whatever. So before I knew it, my little crowd I was following and weaving in and out of um, mixed with this crowd. The only problem with that is that this crowd was following a fight. And before I realized it, I was literally in the middle of the fight that this girl was punching this way, this girl was punching this way, and I'm in between them. And obviously, it's not my fight, so I was going to get out of the fight. And so I very quickly ducked and got out of it. And it was so fast. There's so many people around. But honestly, I don't think anyone realized I was in or out of the fight at all. Like, my presence in the crowd went unnoticed. But that is not this woman's story. This woman was noticed by Jesus. Despite there being a huge crowd, she was noticed by him. Um, I think it's really cool that um, a lot of people were there, yet one person stood out to Jesus. I think what she can teach us is that holy desperation leads to a boldness that gets the attention of God. Verse 24, back to that, it describes the crowd as thronging around Jesus, which is a really weird word. But basically it means, like, it wasn't just like a group of people that were huddled around Jesus, like a group of ten. It was like a Black Friday mob, right? People were in tents. They were all pursuing Jesus for their own desires. Like, there were probably other people that had needs. Like, it doesn't specifically say this in this story, but in other examples in the Bible, they brought so many people to him because they were sick or they, um, someone was paralyzed or blind or whatever. So multiple people probably had a need of their own that they wanted. Lots of people would always come in and view him, and he was like the entertainment. And so what is he going to do next? There's probably other people there also asking that question of what is he going to do next because they were ready to ridicule him. Yeah. They were ready to like write him up in the Bible for breaking all the rules. And so there were a lot of people that were around Jesus and focused on Jesus and bumping up with Jesus and touching Jesus. And yet none of their touch stood out to him. But one woman, one touch got his attention. Her boldness separated her touch from the culture and the crowd around her. When I think about that, I think about you guys. Like, we have some amazing students in here. Uh, Like, anyone can have a podcast. The reality of that is there are a lot of podcasts in the world. But when you have a holy desperation to see people be transformed, you step out in boldness, and God sees that. And your podcast will stand out. Anyone can talk. But when you have a holy desperation to start talking about what God is doing in your life— People in your life start noticing that, and God sees that, and he starts giving you dreams and more insights, and people start listening in, and they start being a part of it and encouraging you, and soon they start entitling your little talks like Chloe sermons, and they have Chrissy and and Allie cheering them on, you know? That's boldness. Anyone can claim the title of Christian, but someone who has a holy desperation for revival will step out in their school and start praying for their school, start praying for strangers and Target because there's a boldness in your life. The disciples didn't understand it either. They probably said what a lot of us would have said of like, Jesus, everyone is touching you. Why are you asking who is touching you? Like how in the world are we supposed to figure this out? Like this is above us. But Jesus noticed her touch apart from all other people. Yeah. This uh, Morgan guy um, is quoting another really smart guy named Augustine. And he said, Augustine long ago said of this story, flesh presses, faith touches. He can always distinguish between the jostle of the curious mob and the organized touch of the needy soul. Her story teaches us that boldness will get the attention of God. Her story will continue in response to Jesus asking who touched him in verse 33. And it says that the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Have you ever been like really bold in one moment and then like the next you're like, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. Like, take it back, take it back. So, like, when I was little, like I said, I didn't, I wasn't like a fighter, but I would get you with my words, and I would um, get real bold and real mouthy, and especially with my mom, I'd get, like, real defiant, and I would say some things, and I would just, like, spit it out, and then the second I did, like, the boldness would go out the window, and I was like, oh, gosh, take it back, take all the words back, but... Um that is kind of where she's sitting at because she's got this holy desperation. She gets bold, she does everything she's not supposed to do, and she reaches out and she touches Jesus. But now is the moment where, like the reality sets in of like what I just did. But because of that holy desperation, it didn't just evaporate in that moment. It still clung on, and that holy desperation would not let her cower. Now she claimed her actions to claim her healing. What she teaches us is that holy desperation leads to boldly claiming what's yours in Christ. Back in verse 27 and 28, the woman said, If I touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And so she touched his garment. So I started thinking, like, why was she so focused on the garment? And so just like we talked about with the law, there were also, like, practices and beliefs of the time, just like we have today. And one of those, a lot of scholars think was the significance of what the robe meant. So one thought was the kings wore really long robes, right? We all see pictures of kings. But what's cool about it is that the robe meant something. It wasn't just like a fashion statement. It was something significant. It was saying that, like, obviously I'm the king, so I have authority. But the other thing it said was that there's victory here. Because what kings would do is they would go out in battle, and when the king was victorious he would cut off the end of the robe of the king that he defeated, and he he would attach it to the robe at the end. So with every victory, his train gets longer and longer and longer of his robe. So when they're looking at the robe, they see authority, they see victory, they see strength, and they see security. Because think about it. If you're in a kingdom with a king whose train is super long, who has all these victories under his belt, you know that like if we go to war, that's okay. I don't have to worry about being stolen, being kidnapped, put into slavery. Like I'm in a good kingdom. He's gonna win. I don't have to be afraid. So the robe represented victory and strength and security. Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 6:1 that I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I love that verse because he says the train of his robe. So not God himself fitting in the temple, not even his robe, but literally just the end of his robe. Which means that fills up this whole temple, this whole room. And he has so much victory that only the end of his robe can fit in the room. Our God is a God and a king of victory. But robes were not just for the kings. Um, Barclay talks about that every devote Jew wore an outer robe to signify to others and to remind himself that the wearer was a member of the chosen people of God. So when this woman was touching Jesus' robe, when she reached out to touch his garment, what she was saying in faith was that I claim your promise, that you are the king of kings, that you have my victory, that you are my strength, you are my security you are the chosen of God, and because that's who you are, I know who I am, and I know that I am healed. She was claiming a promise, and so now, again, is back where that tension is, because she's claiming promise. She's being bold. She has this holy desperation, but how is Jesus going to respond? Is he going to follow these other religious leaders and condemn her and and shoo her out for being unworthy and unclean because she just brought her uncleanness to a holy God? How is he going to react to her? Verse 34 says, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. What it teaches us is that holy desperation leads to boldly being identified as children of God. There's like another story that we can't dive all the way into, but it's important to note it because this woman's story is actually an interruption to something else. When she comes on the scene, there's something else that has taken place before her, and it's a story of a church leader named Jairus who had a 12-year-old daughter. And remember, this woman has been battling her issue for 12 years. So this 12-year-old daughter is sick all of a sudden, and she's actually at the point of death. And so Jairus meets up with Jesus in this crowd, and he convinces him. He's like, you have to come to my house. You have to heal my daughter. And Jesus agrees. And so he's actually on the way to Jairus' house when this woman interrupts him with her need. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us if, like, she overheard this conversation and interrupted the need, like, right away or if it was a part of the journey that she interrupted him. But it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, she interrupted the need. Um, In the end, after her story finishes, Jesus does end up going to Jairus' house and healing that daughter and that 12-year-old. But going back to her story... In that moment, that need hadn't been met yet. And so she interrupts Jesus. And so I think it, like, what could have been is Jesus could have kept on walking. He could have ignored her. He could have said, like, I do want to heal you, but I'm booked. Like, I already have an appointment. You're going to have to come tomorrow, and then we can work it out. He could have said, you know what? You're not worthy enough, you're unclean. I know this is, this is a church member, and, and his daughter is innocent, a 12-year-old little girl. Like, I have to meet this need. But you're considered unclean, and so you're actually not worthy of this. Wow. He could have said any of those things. But instead, he stops, yes. and he addresses her need. He talks to her. He heals her. And then after doing all of that, he gives her the title of daughter. Yes. I think he specifically said that for a reason, because he was comparing the two. He was comparing this 12-year-old daughter with this daughter. He was saying that, like, it doesn't matter if the world thinks you are the most innocent person and that your need maybe just came up five minutes ago. I can meet that, and I love you, and so I'm going to do it. Or if you've been struggling with something your whole life, even if it's your fault maybe, It doesn't matter. Even if no one else thinks you're deserving of this, even if you have questions on whether you're worthy for this or not, I love you as a child, and you are no different than anybody else. And I can meet your need just like I can meet her need, and it can be in the same day, the same moment, right? So he calls her daughter. He's confirming what you previously were known as, as unclean, unworthy, unworthy alone, without hope. Because of your desperation and because you pursued me, you are not that anymore. You're redeemed and you are my child. The identity of child speaks to love and redemption and healing. It speaks to embracing and fellowship and comfort and adoration. And I think all of that happened so that we can look to the story, and we can identify with anybody. We can be that church leader, Jairus. We can be the 12-year-old girl who, like, you just walked in five minutes before service, and something happened in your life, and you weren't expecting it, but now you have something. Or you could be somebody like this woman who you've been struggling with something for year after year after year, and you've been called unworthy. You've been isolated. You've been cast out by everybody who meant something to you in your life, and you're thinking, i tried it all and no one has been there for me you're still his child and he can still meet your need and you can still live a life of boldness when you get a holy desperation inside and say like enough is enough and I'm going to step out in boldness that is when you get to be identified as God's child I think the last thing that she teaches us in this story is that holy desperation leads to a boldness platform The band can come up if they want. But um, in Luke's telling of this exact same story, in Luke chapter 8, he says, "Um, Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she touched him and how she was healed immediately. So she has been living this isolated life of unworthiness, uncleanness, where no one will give her the time of day. And she has this internal moment with God of boldness and um, of desperation, a holy desperation. And it was inward, and no one saw it. But then the person who wasn't allowed in the church wow. becomes a preacher in yeah. one moment. Yeah. And she begins to do what we learned about in Acts chapter 4 with the disciples. And she begins to boldly talk about what Jesus did for her. And people start listening to her. The person they wouldn't have even been associated with. They start listening to her. And what's really cool is that this platform moment did not just happen one time or in one day. There's evidence of her story and multiple stories afterwards. Like in Mark chapter 6, verse 56, it says, Wherever he, Jesus, entered into the villages, the cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. This woman who was isolated, who was forgotten, who was deemed unworthy, gets boldness in her and lives that life and she suddenly has this platform that continues and continues and continues and her story is so compelling and noticeable that other people start getting a holy desperation stirred up within them and they start getting excited and they start believing things that they forgot about a long time ago and they start pursuing it in boldness and saying, if God will do it for her, he could do it for me. And so they pursue Jesus and they touch Jesus and they bring other people to him. And it's a revival that breaks out. Like we talked about at midweek prayer today, if you guys were there, or what's been talked about recently in our church. So like, that is what boldness is. That's what revival is. is one person getting a holy desperation and getting to the place where it doesn't matter anymore. Enough is enough. Like, I am going to be bold. Yes. Whatever that looks like, I'm going to be bold. And then I do it, and, and Jackson catches it. And he gets desperate. And then he gets bold. And then Eman catches it. He gets a holy desperation. And he gets bold. And then Ava catches it. And before we know, our city is different. Our school is different. Our world is different because of a holy desperation. God is inviting us to live a life with boldness, and that boldness starts internally through holy desperation. There's a prophet in the Old Testament called Jeremiah, and he talks about that there were times where he wanted to quit, and he wanted to be quiet, but he couldn't because it was like a fire shut up up in his bones. That's what holy desperation looks like, It's even when you want to quit, even when you want to be quiet, even when you don't understand, even when it's been 12 years, you cannot stop because it's a desperation. It's a conviction. Holy desperation says, I have a convinced faith. It says, I'm deliberately deciding to act. Holy desperation says, I am going to get the attention of God Holy desperation says I'm claiming his promises over my life because I am his child. And holy desperation is what gives you boldness to have a platform to be able to speak to people and encourage people and let boldness be lived out in their life. So if you guys want to go ahead and stand up on your feet and if our altar leaders want to come down.